Daily Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 192, Texas Air Museum, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, welcome, everybody, to a special edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. You know, Larry Overstreet visited the Texas Air Museum in San Antonio, Texas. This museum is actually located on the grounds of Stinson Field. Uh, for those looking for the identifier, it's Kilo Sierra Sierra Foxtrot. It's the second oldest continuously operated general aviation airport in the U.S. Larry had a wonderful time visiting the museum and interviewed Kenny Painter from the Technus, Texas Air Museum. Let's do the pre-flight. Uh, before we begin, though, a quick uh, shout-out to our sponsor, AviationCareersPodcast.com. If you're looking for scholarships to advance your career, career coaching, interview preparation, go to AviationCareersPodcast.com. Also, if you're looking for further ratings, not necessarily looking for a career in aviation, the scholarships guide at aviationcareerspodcast.com might be for you. Uh, we've had many people get scholarships. People that are mechanics working in general aviation have actually been able to get a scholarship to get their private pilot certificate. So make sure you look at those. Many different organizations, AOPA, EAA, Women in Aviation, are giving out scholarships not only for careers in aviation, but to further your flying experience. Now entering cruise flight. Well, anyway, let's move on to the cruise flight. Like I said, Larry interviewed Kenny Painter of the Texas Air Museum. You know, he takes us on a journey through the storied history of the Tenson, excuse me, the Stinson family and their contribution to aviation. You know, most of us know about Stinson aircraft, but in this interview, you'll find out that there's another parallel story of some of the original women aviators and aerobatic pilots. You know, I'm sure you're going to enjoy the stories by Kenny. Not only will you be entertained, but you'll learn something new about aviation history. So enjoy the show. This is Larry Overstreet reporting live for the Stuck Mike Avcast from the Texas Air Museum uh, in um, San Antonio, Texas. And I'm here joined today with Kenny Painter, who is the chief docent at the museum. Kenny, thanks for taking the time out to tell us a little bit about uh, Texas Air Museum. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's And as it turns out, it's my business, too. <laughs> uh, that's a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm looking around here, and I can't imagine being in a better spot for somebody who loves aviation. Um, whether you're a pilot or just an enthusiast, there is a lot of history here to see. Um, Kenny, can you tell us just a little bit about uh, the 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 origin of the airport, how it got started, and um, you know the identifier, and maybe the story behind that too? Okay, I'm glad to. Uh, first of all, uh, 
The field itself, itself, Stinson Field, is the second oldest continuously operated general aviation airport in the United States, second only to the one in College Park, Maryland, which is largely unused nowadays because it's uh, close to the White House and Capitol Building, so it's a no-fly zone. Gotcha. Um, Now, this field was started in 1915 uh, by three women. The women who started this field were Catherine Stinson, who was the first in her family to get a pilot's license, uh, her sister Marjorie, and their mother Emma. Uh, Catherine was designated as the official PR person here and uh, exercised that function mainly because she was the first in the family to get a pilot's license. She did that July 24, 1912. And to refresh your memory just a little bit, that's nine years after the Wright brothers first did their thing at Kitty Hawk. That's eight years before a relatively unknown young man by the name of Lindbergh learned to fly. And then that's 18 years before Amelia Earhart learned to fly. So Catherine got started early. As a matter of fact, Catherine Stinson was the fourth licensed female pilot in the United States. Her sister Marjorie was the ninth So the way they split up the responsibilities were Catherine was the PR person, Marjorie was the certified flight instructor, and uh, their mother, Emma, kept the books and ran the business. So that was their organizational business model here. Um, They had one full-time employee. He was the girl's brother, Eddie Stinson. Eddie was not allowed to be uh, a business partner by his mom because, in her opinion, he was a little bit too fond of alcohol to be trusted with the money. But that's okay because 10 years later, in 1925, uh, Eddie formed his own airplane manufacturing company, Stinson Airplane Company. And there's the connection. Yes. So, but the field was not originally named for Eddie. It was named for the girls. (coughs) Now, Catherine, in order to satisfy her objectives here as PR, primarily, had to learn aerobatics. Nobody was around to teach her, so she taught herself. Presumably at a high enough altitude, so if she made a mistake, she could recover. Uh, Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> Apparently it worked out. It did, yes, and very well, too, because in no time she learned uh, spins and stalls and loops and all that stuff. Um, and uh, eventually she became the first female aviator or aerobatic pilot to do five or more consecutive inside loops in an airplane. Uh, She wasn't satisfied with that, though, because her male peers were certainly able to do that as well. So she decided to teach herself to fly at night. She did so by getting her friends to park their automobiles out here on the field, turn their headlights on, so she could see the land take off at night. Then she wanted to take that one step further. She became the first pilot, man or woman, to do aerobatics at night. And she did so by attaching magnesium torches or flares to her wing braces, which somebody would light before she took off. So she'd be trailing sparks as she did her routine in the night sky. She had to douse the tail section and her wings with water to keep them from catching on fire from those sparks. It was a wooden fabric airplane. She was quite tenacious. Sounds like it. <laughs> and I bet the water didn't uh, stay you know, wet for too long there. No, no, especially if she was in a dry climate. So uh, the, the one thing, the one mention that I've heard of her nighttime escapades for this was uh, she, early in her career as a nighttime aerobatic pilot, uh, 
did a script L.A. in the air in Los Angeles, uh, and the, the people there kind of went crazy. They really liked it. <laughs> first Skyrider. <laughs> yes, that's right. As far as I know. Now, uh, certainly the first female Skyrider, uh, wow. and the first person to do so at night, so I think that's a pretty safe claim. Nice, nice. Uh, now... Uh, I'm going to skip back to Marjorie. Remember, I told you Marjorie is uh, the certified flight uh, instructor here, or she was. And uh, it turns out that if uh, your listeners will recall their World War One history, the war started in 1914, but the United States didn't get involved in, in it until 1917. In the meantime, the Canadians, our neighbors to the north, needed to train a lot of pilots in a very short amount of time. Unfortunately, the weather in Canada does not cooperate many months during the year to do that well and in large numbers. So they knew they were going to have to come further south in North America to do that. And uh, the problem was, because the United States was still neutral, the Canadians could not use any U.S. military resources to train their pilots. It would have been a violation of our neutrality. So they had to engage the services of civilian flight instructors to teach their flight cadets. One of those instructors, as it turns out, was Marjorie Stinson. Marjorie is uh, responsible historically uh, for training no fewer than 80 to 85 of the Royal Canadian Air Force pilot cadets here at this field and they were all under her tutelage. As a matter of fact, back in those days they were trying to train a lot of US Army cadets as well for t- flight training and the first person to uh, first place to do that in this region was at Fort Sam Houston here in San Antonio. Uh, And in those days, the runway, or the airfield, was the parade ground. So that meant if you are a young cadet and you made a mistake, everybody saw it. Kind of like botching a landing at Oshkosh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The only advantage, there was nobody there to video it. (laughs) Okay, so uh, because of that training load... It turns out that in those days, there weren't sufficient number of flight instructors at Fort Sam. So they would farm out some of their flight cadets here to Stinson Field for Marjorie to also teach. So she had a mixture of RCAF flight cadets as well as U.S. Army flight cadets in her classes on a regular basis. And she was in all that functioning as a private citizen flight instructor, not as a, a functioning member of the military. That is correct. She was a civilian flight instructor in, in every respect. Yes. Very so, cool. Um, now, getting back to Catherine. Catherine was touring the United States, doing air shows quite frequently. Catherine, among other things, pioneered the use of a modularly constructed airplane, which you could take apart, put in a shipping container, ship to your next venue, unpack it, put it back together again, re-rig the flight controls, and fly the show. That's how she toured most of the United States and southern Canada. That's also how she toured China and Japan. When she was in China, she was the first person to demonstrate a heavier-than-air flying machine to the general Chinese public. And the Chinese were stunned by all of this, and many of them were convinced she was a witch. They thought she was supernatural. They thought all she had to do was sit down in her airplane, it would magically lift into the sky. In other words, they weren't familiar with flight physics. They didn't know that you had to get a running start to take off. 
they would initially completely surround her airplane and it would take police to get them out of the way so she could take off. So it was a bit of a learning process for the Chinese and Japanese later on. Uh, Incidentally, one little sidebar on this. After World War II ended, our U.S. Navy and Army Air Force were interviewing as many of the surviving Japanese aces as we could, one of whom was a guy named Sakai. He was probably the most famous of all those aces in Japan who survived the war. And they asked him what got him interested in aviation. He said, as a young boy, he watched Catherine Stenson give an aerial demonstration in Japan. It's funny how things come around in a loop, so to speak. Uh, Okay, so uh, to continue a little bit about Catherine, when we finally did get into the war, Catherine wanted to apply to be a fighter pilot. She was already much more experienced in maneuvers than 99.9% of the guys. But because she was the wrong gender, Uncle Sam said, sorry, can't do it. She got refused three official times, uh, one by a representative, one by a contact in the War Department, and once by a senator, I think. And so she took the hint and said, okay, i got to give up. And she decided that she was going to stop flying and uh, become a nurse and drive an ambulance in the combat zone. So when the U.S. government found out about that, they said, "Miss Stinson, we applaud your patriotism but we would like for you to consent to fly an airplane in a fundraising junket around the United States to raise money for the Red Cross. She was pleased to say yes for that. And um, when Curtis Airplane Company found out what her plans were, they said, Ms. Stinson, we would be happy to modify one of our JN4s, make it a single-seater, and install some conveniences for you in the cockpit paint the tail white with a red cross on it to make it easier for you to raise funds. And she said, okay. And they said, oh, by the way, this is free. Okay, we're not going to charge you anything. Very good. Yes. And uh, she took them up on it, and uh, they did come across with the airplane. Uh, and the amenities that include were included in the cockpit were a rolling map contraption to help her keep track of wherever she was. And because she was photographed wherever she went... They included a mirror and vanity, brushes, combs, lip rouge, as I believe it was called in those days, and some other things so that she could look her best wherever she landed. And it was her practice, even before she did this, that when she was touring, um, after she landed, of course, there was always press coming in and photographing her. As a matter of fact, she was the most photographed female in the United States in the wow. mid-19-teens, okay? So uh, she was practiced at removing her goggles and Snoopy cap, or hat, and uh, putting on a stylish beret and combing out her hair and everything. And incidentally, uh, it was no accident that she was the most photographed female around this time because she was a perfect representative for aviation and women in aviation. Uh, she was educated she was articulate, she was poised, she was sharp, and she was smart enough to know that 
you win people over to your side by relaxing them in any situation. She was the favorite interview for many people in those days because she was such a delight to be with. And she knew how to play to a crowd too, and there were many in those days. So as I said before, she was the perfect representative for women in aviation in those days. And in my opinion, I know I'm going to be throwing shade on an icon here, but I, in my opinion, I think she was a better pilot than Amelia was. Uh, and Okay. <laughs> uh, whatever. Anyway, um, now, toward the point where she did become a nurse, she was driving an ambulance in the combat zone. It was only in the last few months of the war, uh, maybe in the last six months. Okay. After the war ended, November 11, 1918, she decided to stay to help clean up the mess. Uh, while she was there, she contracted uh, tuberculosis, which of course was incurable mm. in those days. And uh, while she was convalescing in a British hospital, uh, a young American flyer by the name of Miguel Otero was walking through the hospital and he recognized her. She was one of the most famous people he was familiar with as a fellow aviator, so he boldly walked over and introduced himself. And they got to talking. They both found out they loved aviation, and so they became friendly right away. Uh, he found out that she had TB, and he said, well, you need to come to my hometown, Santa Fe, New Mexico. The climate and atmosphere there, the air is dry and cool most years, most months of the year. And uh, there are a lot of convalescent homes there where people uh, can cure themselves of this disease because of the environment. And she said, sounds like a good idea. So she moved to Santa Fe. And while she was convalescing in Santa Fe, she had a steady visitor, Miguel Otero. Uh, they, came, they became even closer. She was there for six years before she was declared cured of tuberculosis. After she was declared cured, he declared his love for her, asked her to marry him, and she said yes. And they were married in 1928. From then on, she was known as Catherine Stinson Otero. Wow. Um, yes. <laughs> what a, what and, a courtship story. Uh, and, and incidentally, of course, all the time she was ill, she never flew. She didn't mm -hmm. take the chance. Sure. And, uh, and then uh, after she was cured... She got married, and she didn't feel like she had any connection with aviation anymore. She had, like, turned a corner. She was looking down the road, and she didn't see an airplane in her future anymore. So she had stopped flying. And the last time she flew was uh, before she became a nurse. Hmm. So 10 years prior to that, of course, in 1918. So now yeah. it's 1928, and she's, her, a different part of her life has started. And she never flew again. Hmm. Uh, only as a passenger later on. Did he uh, maintain a connection with aviation? No. Okay. Uh, it turns out that Miguel Otero had excellent connections in Santa Fe. His family, going back many generations, were part of the Spanish land grant that occurred in the early, early, early days of Santa Fe, New Mexico. As a matter of fact, his dad was the last territorial governor for the territory of New Mexico before it became a state. Okay. Yeah, so Miguel had good roots to connect with. And Catherine, being as sharp as she was, 
wasn't given to idle time, and she became interested in architecture. She became a residential architect, and she designed several homes or buildings. She also became distressed at the deterioration that she saw in the adobe facades of the old cathedrals and government buildings in Santa Fe, and Mm -hmm. she convinced her husband to marshal his colleagues and his friends and their monetary resources to help in the restoration process. And so if you visit now, a lot of the improved facades that you see started with her efforts, I believe, back in the 1930s. Wow. Yeah, she was quite a remarkable person. Uh, Now, they continued that way. They never had any kids. That was just them. Every once in a while, she and her husband would care for uh, Eddie's uh, stepchildren, uh, but uh, it was just them for the most part. Um, uh, Miguel passed away in 1977. He was buried in the National Memorial Cemetery there in Santa Fe as a World War I vet. Four months later, uh, Catherine followed him in death, Hmm. and she died in 1977 also at the age of 86. Wow. So she lived quite a long life. Unfortunately, uh, she had a stroke in the early 1960s. So from the early 60s until 1977, she was primarily bedridden. Hmm. So that was unfortunate. Yeah. Now, to to go back and put kind of a cap on it, there were four siblings for the Stinson family. Uh, To summarize, Catherine was the firstborn. Uh, She was married, but no children. Marjorie was second in line in birth, never married, no children. Eddie, third in line. Eddie was married, had stepchildren, no children of his own. And Jack was the last born. He had four kids. Of those four children, only one of them had direct association with aviation. He was an Air Force pilot. Okay. So uh, what I'm telling you is essentially the connection between aviation history and the Stinson family ended with that first generation. Wow. And quite a story. Yeah, and then there's the whole airplane company side of it, yes. too. Yes, yeah, uh-huh. And, and like I said, Eddie started that in 1925 by partnering with five gentlemen from Dearborn, Michigan, to set that up. And, and Eddie was the primary driving creative force, uh, although he had some really good engineers working for him and, and machinists as well. Uh, and that continued until Eddie's untimely death in 1932. Hmm. He was demonstrating a Stinson trimotor, which was in mm-hmm. competition with Ford trimotor, and uh, the demonstration was requested by a group of three businessmen who were thinking about using the Stinson trimotor as uh, the backbone for their commercial airline venture. And uh, so they set up the demo flight in January in Chicago. Cold. And windy. And windy. And maybe a little ice, too. Yeah. And uh, they had some problems. Eddie had to put the plane down on an emergency basis. Uh, One of the gentlemen was a native of Chicago and said, hey, there's a golf course over here. I think you can make it. Uh, And Eddie did make it to the golf course, but what he didn't figure on was a telephone pole. And Mm. one of the wings wrapped around the pole, and it killed Eddie. 
um, but the three passengers survived. Hmm. Uh, so at the time of Eddie's death, he had over 15,000 flight hours. Oh, my. Yes, and most pilots will tell you, on most days, they'd rather take luck over skill just about any time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Ken, tell us about a little bit more about the museum. Okay. And for visitors who might come, you know, I'm, I'm looking around and there's exhibits everywhere. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorites? Well, uh, my favorites are the older aircraft. We have replicas as well as a few originals. Most of what's in here that's vintage 1909 to 1918 are replicas, however. We do have one aircraft that's called a Christofferson. And it looks exactly like a Curtis Model D pusher. Okay. Uh, it's two different designers, but the same looking aircraft. Um, and uh, I always like to point out that those early aircraft didn't have seatbelts. Uh, and basically, if a pilot made the mistake and cast himself out of his own seat, he was too stupid to be a pilot anyway. I've heard some stories about that. <laughs> Incidentally, um, kind of a sidebar here, it is reputed... Maybe this is an urban legend. I'm not really sure. They've been trying to verify this, haven't done it yet. That the first seatbelt on a military aircraft was installed here at San Antonio at Fort Sam. There's a story. The story goes that a young cadet was trying to learn to fly. He had a rough landing, and the bounce when he hit the, the ground caused him to bounce out of his seat, and the airplane rolled over him. Uh, the injuries were lacerations and bruises and a really, really bruised ego as well. And remember, this is on the parade ground, so everybody saw it. And he vowed that this would not happen again. So he talked to his buddies in the cavalry outfit on, on fort or on post. And uh, he said, look, rig me up a strap that I can attach to the seat and I could undo easily if I need to. And uh, somebody from the the riding tack outfit went out there and took a look at the seat and said, give me two or three days. Two or three days later, he had a leather strap with a sturdy buckle that would fasten and unfasten relatively quickly, and you could adjust the the length of it, too. So this was the first seat belt installed on the first military aircraft in U.S. Army history, and it happened here at Fort Sam. (laughs) <laughs> that that's the story. <laughs> I, I like the story, and I'm I'm glad someone thought to do it. <laughs> yeah, I've had a few rough landings of my own. Yes, I understand. Um, and I'm a private pilot too, but I I let my uh, currency lapse a long time ago. Uh, but I still keep in practice with three or four different flight simulators at home. It's not the same, but it's close enough. It's still fun. Yeah, it is. What else is here at the museum? Uh, okay, we've got, in addition to the older aircraft, uh, we have um, a full-scale replica of a Feisler 103, better known as a V-1 buzz bomb. The variant on ours, however, was manned. It had a guy in it. And they developed that toward the very end of World War II. They became desperate to come up with a weapon uh, that was accurate enough to use against high-value ground targets. Of course, the V-1, as it was originally configured, wasn't nearly accurate enough to do that mm-hmm. uh, in the unmanned form. Uh, so they modified a V-1 to put a guy in it, had a canopy, had a cockpit with a stick in it, and he was the, uh, the guidance mechanism. It was designed for him to ride it straight into the ground. Mm. And uh, they decided not to use it. 
because it was against their Aryan philosophy of superiority. One does not admit defeat, and a weapon like that was inherently defeatist. So it was never used for that reason. But they decided to test it to make sure that it would otherwise work. And so um, they used it, um, I guess you would say, yes, it was usable, but not officially used yet. Okay. Uh, now, um, this thing was, like I said, originally autopilot directed gyroscope stable stabilized with a mm -hmm. compass. Okay. And uh, these things were to be ridden into the ground, uh, if not otherwise piloted. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to make them work, you had to test the prototype. So they had to have a test pilot in it. So after they got it built, put the cockpit all together in the canopy and everything, they put a test pilot in it, launched him into the sky. 45 seconds later, something went drastically wrong. The, the airplane was destroyed and the pilot was killed. They did a post-crash investigation, found out what went wrong, modified a second prototype. They launched it into the sky. Minute and a half later, kaboom, pilot dead plane destroyed. They did a second post-crash investigation, found out what was wrong with it, and built a third prototype looking around for a test pilot. No volunteers come up, up at all, except... Can't imagine why. Except Hannah Reich, a heck of a pilot in World War II, a civilian pilot, uh -huh. volunteered to go. As a matter of fact, the whole airplane design, Pfizer 103, with a manned uh, um, as a manned weapon was originally her idea, so she demanded to be put in the, in the cockpit. Okay, so now it's the third prototype, the third test pilot. She put herself in the cockpit, closed the window, strapped herself in, and they ignited the jet engine. You know, it's got a pulse jet engine, and launched it into the sky. She flew it around for 30 minutes, was satisfied with the result, declared it gut. Yes, das ist gut. And she radioed her satisfaction to the ground crew uh, at Pinamunda, the test facility uh, on the ground. And uh, so now it ran out of gas on schedule. And now she has to pilot it, dead stick, to a landing on the beach sand at Pinamunda. No wheels. Belly landing. It was never intended to land. That's exactly right. It was designed to explode, not land. The estimated landing speed for that airplane under those conditions was 200 miles per hour. Ooh. By far the fastest landing ever done by any aircraft in World War II, Pacific or, or uh, European theater. And I'm not counting uh, other suicide weapons, mm -hmm. okay? There were some that were rocket-powered in, uh, in uh, for Japan mm. in the Pacific, but I'm not counting that. Uh, so, she landed it just fine, thank you very much, on the beach. And I've seen an old black and white Nazi propaganda film that surfaced after the war ended, and you can see her getting out of the machine, and she pulls her Snoopy hat off and straightens her hair. She wasn't smiling, but she was just fine. Uh, <laughs> incredible. And uh, this is the same woman who piloted the airplane to Storch. From when uh, Hitler got on it in uh, the Eagle's Nest, 
okay. in Berchtesgaden. She flew him to the bunker in Berlin. Hmm. So he trusted her that much as a pilot. Yeah. So she really was good. She survived the war, by the way. Wow. And has been interviewed by a lot of people about her exploits. Uh, she was one of the finest pilots, certainly the best civilian pilot in Germany at the time. So that's something we can see here. Yes. Well, yeah, we can see a machine. Yeah. And again, it's a full-scale replica. It's not the actual aircraft. Sure, sure. Yeah, right. But you can see more or less how it works and what it's intended. Incidentally, uh, I tell children who come in, I say, what if you were living in London and these things were falling on you, the unmanned version mm -hmm. of them, which and many did. Uh, mm -hmm. There were estimated 6,000 casualties in London from V1s falling on them uh, alone. And uh, I said, well, in order to avoid the bombs, you can hide in the uh, subway tunnels, uh, the tubes, as they call mm -hmm. them. And a lot of people save their own lives that way. Uh, but another thing you can do, it's an air-breathing aircraft. It's flying through the air. If you can get a beat on it by coming in behind it on its six, it can't avoid you. There's nobody on board to jink and jive and try and avoid being shot at. So... If you can catch up to it and shoot it, you can shoot it down. The problem when they first started doing that is sometimes the ordnance that the Spitfires were unleashing to get the V-1 down would cause the warhead to detonate. So its radius, the kill radius, would be enough to take the Spitfire out. Too. Ooh, okay. So the, what it amounts to is the, the pilot involved with, would have to tread water in the English Channel for his trouble. Uh, one British pilot said, well, I'm bloody well not going to do that. What he did was he flew his Spitfire down to, and even with the V-1, put his wingtip underneath the adjacent wingtip of the V-1 and used his own airplane wing to flip it over. <laughs> it was called tipping the doodlebug. Much much more uh, uh, clever, at least. Yes, yeah. And, and another British pilot who was piloting a uh, British Mustang mm -hmm. said, well, I'm not going to scratch my wingtip paint and make my crew chief angry at me. What he did was he flew his Mustang down to and just in front of the V1, overlapping wings so that the turbulent air coming off his laminar flow wing disturbed the lift on the adjacent wing of the V1. Same result, no touchy. It just had to fall away. Yes, Interesting. It works. Interesting. And, and because the uh, control surfaces hooked to the autopilot on the V1s were so small, they could not correct for a roll like that okay. before they would go into the sea and crash harmlessly. Uh, the mean altitude for most of these V1s was around 3,500 feet. Oh, wow. Okay, so they weren't high at all. No, they weren't. No. My goodness. Okay. Um, Texas Air Museum. What are your hours? When can people uh, come see you? Uh, we are open uh, Tuesday through Saturday. We're closed Sunday and Monday. And our hours of operation are 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, we, are, we are closed uh, in the week between Christmas and New Year's, including Christmas Day and New Year's Day. But we're open all, all the other days. Oh, very good. Well, it's definitely something that's uh, worth some hours to come down and, and take a look at and enjoy and, and see some of the history and hear some of the stories. Um, you can find out more at TexasAirMuseum.org, I believe. Uh, if you want to fly in, it's uh, Kilo Sierra Sierra Foxtrot, which stood for? 
Stinson School of Flying. Couldn't get much better than that. Um, Kenny, thank you again for your time, for sharing the stories, for sharing a little bit about the museum here. Uh, We sure appreciate it. Thanks very much. It was my pleasure. And this is Larry Overstreet reporting for the Stuck Mike Avcast uh, at uh, Stinson Field uh, in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Avcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.